0: This morning, we are continuing through our study of the Psalter, our summer uh, spending in the, our time spending in the book of Psalms. Last week, I was greatly blessed by uh, Psalm 73 by Jeff Brown of just talking about God's goodness. This morning, we are going to spend our time in Psalm 62, another Psalm just, just full of rich just theology that magnifies the Lord. This is a Psalm that for me, it's become one of my favorites. Over the last several years, um, this is actually a psalm that I preached here about four years ago, and I'll, I have to admit, I was actually working through another one for this morning, and as I was studying, I just kept thinking of this one, and I made a switch. So we are going to spend our time in Psalm 62. So if you could, take your copy, copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. This is a psalm of David, and he begins verse 1, and he writes, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man, that you may murder him, all of you, Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken." On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God and that loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Like I've already said, this is over the years have become one of my favorite psalms. It's almost become like this worn out tool that in my life is going through trials and problems This is one of my go-tos that I have to put in front of me to encourage myself. And this is an encouraging psalm because it is, like many other psalms, it's written in a real-life situation with a real-life perspective. This is a psalm that is written out of darkness, out of a dark situation. Instead, when you read this, you don't think about that. You don't think about the darkness, but rather you think about just the theological light that just pours from this, from just David's theology of what he knows about his God. Instead of this being a lament of just life circumstances, it is a worship of who God is and what he has done. And throughout all redemptive history, God's people have suffered. We live in a fallen world. That is something to expect And yet, with that, the expectation is that through even the worst circumstances, we are to worship God. We are to praise him. That is an expectation of God. Through the worst, darkest times in our lives, we joyfully praise God. Now, how can we do that? And we can only do that if we think rightly about God, if we have the right theology of him that guides our life. It was A.W. Tozer, the family said, famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In simplistic terms, how we think about God, our theology of God should guide every step of our life. What we believe should apply to how we live. We must have a theology that guides us. And yet, I have found that in the church, and admittedly in my own life, many times there can be a disconnect between what we say we believe, and yet, how we live out our life. Sometimes, it's sometimes like we're walking around with a spiritual amnesia, that where we're fed the truth, where The truth is in front of us, and yet when the pressures of life is applied to us, all of a sudden we turn back to selfishness, to anxiety, and all the things that we know about God is not applied in our lives. And there's many reasons for this. It's our own sinful hearts, but also there's lots of distractions and, and just worldly doctrines that are constantly competing with our biblical doctrine of what we know about God. Every, every day, if you turn on your news, news app... You're going to be fed doctrines of anger, of anxiety, of fear. It's just going to be a constant cycle of fear, of, of threats of world war, of inflation, high gas prices, protests in the streets. It's an everyday thing. And many times, with that constantly in front of us, we can adopt those worldly doctrines of fear and anxiety and forget about the news apps for a second just us living with other people we live with sinners we are sinners and many times living with sinners what happens is that sin is poured out on on you and we deal with affliction in our lives from other people that many times can lead to a life of being disturbed and robbed of peace and the truth is that we are not gonna make it through this world without somehow being afflicted by the sinners around us. That is an expectation. We live in a world of turmoil and injustice. And one thing we need to remember: that there's nothing, that's there's nothing new with that. That has happened since the beginning of creation. You go through church history, and there's nothing new under the sun. It is a constant history of Chaos due to sinful hearts being poured out and afflicting others. I was recently reminded by this from uh, my wife. She was sharing with me uh, something that she read in a biography of John Bunyan. I've heard uh, Rick and other people say that for just your spiritual welfare, it's good to pick a dead guy from way back in the past. Spend a lot of time with him, study him, and my wife, she is all in on John Bunyan. That has become her guy. And because of that, I've actually learned (laughs) a lot about uh, John Bunyan. So, John Bunyan, as many of you know, he's famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress, which was known for actually being the first novel that is written in English. And there has been, it's one of the most printed books in all of history, And that book, along with many others that he wrote, was written while he spent 12 years in prison. And he spent those 12 years in prison just for, just in simplistic terms, preaching the gospel without being acknowledged by the Church of England, by not being acknowledged by the government. And he spent those 12 years in jail for just preaching the gospel. That's what he did. It was a very unjust thing. And the most bizarre thing about it is it was actually during that time, it was a Protestant church that had jailed one of the greatest Protestant Puritan men that we know of today. And he suffered greatly. However, however, his time in jail was something that was not wasted. And it was because of his connection with God. And there was one time where he had a friend that wrote a letter to him, a letter of encouragement. And John wrote a letter back to him. And this was a quote that actually my wife shared with me the other day. But John Bunyan wrote this. And it's actually in the worksheet that, uh, that you guys picked up from the back. For though men keep my outward man within their bolts and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Here dwells good conscience, also peace. Here my garment White. Here, in my bounds, I have release from guilt, which else would bite. And this part right here the truth and I were both cast together, and we do lie arm in arm, and so hold fast each other. This is truth. So, John Bunyan who suffered unjustly he could have rotted away in prison just consumed with bitterness and yet it was what he knew about God that kept him going as he says the truth that he knows was arm in arm with him in prison and it was that that guided him it was a truth that held him fast and as we're going to see for this morning, this, this Psalm 62, that Bunyan and King David have a lot in common because they, are, they were sustained through the worst trials by what they believed about God. And something to ask yourself, in your worst trials, in your worst trials, it, is, it, is it the truth that you know about God that actually sustains you through the worst times of your life? Or typically... Do you forget that truth and spin out of control and react in worldly doctrines of fear, anxiety, and anger? Many times it's that, and I can even confess that in my own life, that many times we have a spiritual amnesia, and we forget the truth about God that should cause us to persevere through the worst situations. And in these situations of trials and conflict, situations of anxiety... We need to be the ones as Christians that just learn how to stop and just press pause. Just press pause. We need to learn to detach from these bad situations and stop and meditate on what we know about truth, what we know about truth of God and that in our theology that should guide us through the worst situations. We need to be those who are quick to meditate on what we know about God. And that's exactly what we find David doing in our passage this morning. We find and we observe observe him meditating on what he knows about God. In Psalm 62 by David, as we're going to read, there are real dangers that he is facing. And yet, there is no methods, there is no strategies of how he's going to be victorious over this. Instead, David just presses pause and he... Goes back to what he knows about his sovereign God, and God praises God for who He is, and His theology in this Psalm is for all of, is on display for all of us to see and take heed of. This is a Psalm by David, as many of you know, as a giant killer, as the anointed King over Israel, as a man that is after God's own heart. But this Psalm is not about David. Instead. This psalm is about God. So, as we work through this, many of you have a worksheet, we're going to to uncover three reasons to confidently seek God when faced with trials. Three reasons to confidently seek God when faced with trials. And the first reason that we're going to uncover in verses 1 through 4 is that deliverance is found in God alone. Deliverance is is found in God alone. Look down verse 1 with me. David writes, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. So this psalm starts out with a very peculiar scene. You have a king, one of the most powerful men at this time, is just simply waiting in silence. In fact, David even says it's his soul that's waiting in silence. It's everything of who he is, is waiting in silence, everything of who he is, is just waiting. The most powerful man in the world. And as David's going to explain the next and verses that we're going to cover very soon, there are real dangers that he is facing. Life threatening dangers. But instead of immediately going to those troubles like I would, if I have troubles, that's probably going to be the first thing that pours out of me is this situation I'm going to. Instead, he just starts off telling what he knows about God. And in the Psalm, a king over a powerful nation is simply waiting. And who's he waiting for? As he describes, he's waiting for his God, the sovereign God who made him king over Israel. And It is not just that he's waiting he is waiting only for God. There is no other option. There is no other plan B. It is God in whom he is searching for deliverance for. It is God only. Now, one little footnote. Waiting here, if you notice, is, ital- is italicized. In the original language, it's actually not, not there. It's just David is in silence for God only. But within the context, that is a very fitting verb, waiting. And it's fitting because it is a verb. It is an action. What David is doing here is nothing but passive. This is not something that he is doing because he has lost all hope. And he's just sitting there just not knowing what to do. He is acting out of what he knows about God. Waiting is a verb. And this is a very active decision, deliberate decision in which he has made. Because he knows that God is his only source of deliverance. He is acting out of what he knows about God. That is why he is actively waiting. Is because of what he knows about God. Because what he says from him is my salvation. Is God alone, in which his salvation is from whatever, whatever situation David is in. It doesn't seem to be relevant. He doesn't spend a lot of time explaining every detail of that. Instead, he just simply starts off the psalm of telling who his God is. His God is a deliverer, and he is the source of David's salvation. Now, just to stop here for a second, this word salvation, which is yasha in the Hebrew, it's... It's in our day to day, we tend to spiritualize it, we tend to make it a strictly a spiritual term of salvation, when really it's a very broad term, meaning a salvation from anything, from physical to spiritual, a very broad term. George Zimmick in his biblical theology of doctrines of sovereign grace, one of my professors, he says this, there is nothing in the word yasha which indicates the mode or which limits the extent of salvation. It includes divinely bestowed deliverance from every class of spiritual and temporal evil in which mortal man is subjective. So David doesn't spend a lot of time time explaining what does his salvation need to look like. Now he's dealing with physical, earthly problems of attacks against him. But instead, once again, instead of going through every little detail of that, he just talks about who his God is. And he is a deliverer. Now, it's good to stop here for a second. As far as David's confidence in his God of being a deliverer, of being a God that can be trusted, trustworthy, this is not something of just him having certain feelings, emotions, wishful thinking, thinking, well, maybe there's a guardian angel hovering over me, watching me, things like that. He, his Confidence in God is based off of what he knows about God from what God has revealed to his people, to David. David was the anointed king of Israel. He was anointed king of Israel. He was the defender and upholder of the law, God's promises. He had scripture, he had the covenants that God made, he had revelation of God revealing himself to his people. And God had revealed himself as somebody who blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. One example, Deuteronomy seven, nine through eleven, let me read it for you. This is Moses speaking to the Israelite Israelites. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation, and those who love him and keep his commandments but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. So what Moses wrote to the Israelites this is something David would have known, that those who are faithful to God, God blesses them. He loves them. He loves those who love himself. And yet he is going to be the one who rejects and punishes the wicked. That is something that because of who God is, David has confidence that God is going to make this right. He is going to be the one who comes through to him as the righteous king of Israel. That is his confidence because God has revealed himself as such. So David goes on in verse 2 to further describe his deliverer. Look down verse 2. He says, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. So here David repeats himself here by pointing out that God is the source of his salvation. But then he describes him as a rock, a stronghold. He describes God as having weighty significance. He is a rock that cannot be moved. He is a stronghold or a fortress that cannot be penetrated. You get a picture of a castle with high walls that cannot be broken down or scaled. And here, David praises his deliverer as someone who is not going anywhere, cannot be overcome. And because of that, David is not going to be greatly shaken. Because God is immovable, David is going to be safe because of who his God is. Now, that last part there that David says, by making this statement, in him I will not be greatly shaken, by that he means that there are circumstances that could greatly shake him. And the next few verses, he explains a little bit, just gives a little color of some of the things that are going on in his life. We're not told the exact situation that David is in. Some commentators say that maybe this was written towards, um, the, during the time of Absalom's rebellion, but we don't know. It's really insignificant. What exactly is going on? What's significant is that he is in trouble, and within all this, he looks to his God. But there is a real danger. He says, he starts off talking and describing these men that are attacking him. And he starts off with this rhetorical question of: how long will you assail a man? How long will you attack, violently attack a man? And he's not asking for an actual time period of, okay, what's, what's the date on the calendar that this is going to stop? Instead, he's actually crying out, it's been too long that this is happening. It's just constant grinding problem of these men attacking him, wanting to destroy him, constantly looking for weaknesses to attack him with. And as he says, this is what they want to do. He writes that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. These men are looking to destroy David, and they're looking at him like somebody sitting back and examining a wall that they're going to push over. They're looking for cracks throughout. They're looking for weaknesses. They're looking for soft places in the foundation, looking for their opportunities to destroy and destroy him. They're looking for ways to utterly ruin him. This is a real situation, a real danger. And as he writes, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They are plotting to take him down. It's really interesting right here. Here David is looking to the Lord for his deliverance, and these men, instead of taking counsel from the Lord, they're taking counsel from among themselves. It says that they're counseling only to thrust him down. These men are plotting just through the, their wickedness, through the depravity of their hearts to take down the king of Israel, somebody who is anointed by God. These men are wicked, and here's the most dangerous thing that he says next, the most dangerous aspect of these wicked men. He says, they delight in falsehood, They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. And this is the worst kind of danger. This is not, seems to be not a far-off enemy, an army on a distant battlefield that you are preparing to fight. This is somebody close. This is somebody who is deceiving. This is somebody who is probably very close to him that's saying, bless the king, but inwardly they're looking for ways to destroy him. This is the worst kind of danger. This is probably probably somebody who's saying that they are a loyal subject to the king, head bowed in honor, but looking up, waiting for the moment to strike. This is a very painful situation. This is a real pain that David needs help help from. And us in this room, we're not kings. We're not the anointed king of Israel. We probably have not faced necessarily the danger which he is facing, but yet, many of us, all of us in some ways have dealt with this kind of duplicitous evil behavior, betrayal, slander, destroyed trust. We all have sinners in our life that are looking to somehow afflict pain on us, and that pain is real. And I'm sure right now, many of you are even thinking of names, situations, problems that you're going through right now that are very difficult, these situations are very real. They're very real, and we do live in a sinful world where this type of depravity exists, and it is a real hurt in our lives. And once again, we have to remind ourselves that we will not make it through this life without somehow being afflicted by sinners around us. It is an expectation. It will be a grinding, constant problem until Christ comes back. The affliction and the pain is real, and it is expected. And this is what David is feeling. But right here, as he is giving us just a little bit of color of his situation, here is where it seems like he just presses pause again. And then he just goes right back to what he knows about his God, talking about his sovereign Lord. And for those of you who are probably even thinking of the real hurt in your lives, I would invite you to press pause and join David in looking at what he knows about his God. So in verses 5 through 8, we will uncover another reason to confidently seek God when faced with trials. And the second reason is hope of security is found in God alone. Hope of security is found in God alone. Look down at verse 5 with me. He writes, My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. So once again, he goes immediately back to telling himself of what he knows about God and why he is waiting. He's Not only is he just reminding himself, but he's actually even talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. He cries out, my soul, wait in silence for God only. He's commanding himself to do that. He's reminding himself to do that. There's probably a temptation to spin out of control in anxiety and fear and anger. And yet he's reminding himself, wait for the Lord. And wait for the Lord's provision. Provision. Once again, he's not sitting around paralyzed, not knowing what to do. This waiting for God alone is an active decision based on what he knows about God. And what does he know about God? As he simply says, For my hope is from him. And when we think of hope, many times we're not thinking of what David's talking about here. We use hope in a lot of ways, of things we're not sure is going to happen. We say things like, you know, I hope it's going to be sunny and there's not going to be humidity, you know, this week, which is probably going to happen. It's going to be hot and it's going to be humid. We say things like, I hope my team is going to win. I hope gas prices are going to go down. All things that we use that language for of things that's like, I hope this happens, but maybe, maybe not. That is not what David is saying here. The biblical definition for hope is expectation. David is not saying that it is he just, he hopes, maybe, maybe not, that God is going to come through for him. It is his expectation that God will prevail. It is his expectation that God is going to come through for him. David's hope is not as a king in his powers, in his riches, in anything that he has as a king over Israel. Instead, his expectation, his hope, is from God. Nothing of himself, but the God, his sovereign Lord, who would put him king over Israel. And due to where his hope lies, due to that, he is actively waiting for his provision for him alone because of what he knows about God. And so he goes on giving giving reasoning of why he's doing this in verse 6. He says he only is my rock and my salvation. Notice the only's. It is God alone in which he's looking to. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. So, if you've noticed, he actually repeats himself here. He repeats himself from verses 1 and 2. Once again, he is reminding himself, he is commanding himself to be reminded of this truth, to take confidence in this truth. So, He repeats himself, but here there's just a little slight difference. Before he had said that, yes, the Lord is his rock and his stronghold, and he said before that he will not be greatly shaken. Here he just says he will not be shaken. There seems to be almost even a growing confidence, as David writes this, that before it's like, I won't be greatly shaken, Maybe just a little bit. Where here it just seems like, I will be touched at all. I will not be shaken. So he is growing in his confidence of what he knows about God. And here he seems to be telling himself, I'm not going to be touched at all due to who God is. So his worship of him continues in verse 7. He says, on God my salvation and my glory rest." the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. So once again, he's repeating himself that God, God is the hope of his security. And yet, he adds something that he hasn't set up to this point. He says, he mentions that God is his glory, his glory rest. And so you were talking about the king of Israel, the king of Israel who could, as many other kings do, they take glory within themselves of who they are, their high position. And here David is, he is saying it is God who is his glory. And I love this word. I love this word for glory in Hebrew. It's kavod. It means to be heavy with majesty, with honor, with dignity. God's glory has a weight to it. And as David looks to him, God's glory has a weight. He is David's rock, and in him he has strength. God's security is something that is not going to be moved. God is all-powerful, and his glory is something that has weight. And so all these things that David is saying, not only is it him reminding himself, but this is him worshiping God for who he is. He is a God of glory. And so he ends this verse by just pointing out that his refuge is in God. Once again, that David's situation is grim, but he is confident of his safety under the Lord's sovereign um, provision. God is David's shelter and protection, and in him there is security. Now, this next verse, verse eight, this might be my favorite part of this whole, of this whole, this whole psalm. David is reminding himself, David as king, reminding himself of the reality of his hope. And security in God. But then he turns his attention from himself and then turns it to the people of his kingdom. So he says in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So David turns from speaking to himself, to his soul, to actually speaking to others, and he commands others to put their trust in God and commands them to be the ones to seek him, to pour out their hearts before him. Now, this pouring out their hearts before him, this heart many times in scripture can be described as the mission control center of who you are. It's everything of who you are. So this pouring out your heart, yes, this is a prayer, but it's much more than that. This is actually you seeking God with everything of who you are. This should be something that actually defines who you are. It's somebody who is seeking the Lord, seeking his provision because of who he is seeking him with your whole self. And so David's crying out to the people to do this. This is not asking for a flippant prayer. This is a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle for them to seek him with with their whole selves. So... What does waiting for the Lord look like? Waiting for God only. What does this look like? It looks like you pouring out your heart before him, seeking God with all of whom you are and based off of knowing who he is. That's what waiting for the Lord looks like. And this this is so significant. But David is writing as God's anointed king. But these wonderful resources that we have in the Lord, it's not just for him. As he is saying, God is a refuge for us. Him talking about the people of God. Not just for him, but for Israel. And this is an amazing thing. And this is true for us today. That the holy God of the universe is not just one who listens to kings. Who does not just listen to those whom society holds up as being significant. He is one who listens to the weak. He listens to the broken. He listens to the insignificant. He listens to just regular people like you and me. That is an amazing God. And in him, we have hope of salvation and security. And that God, David's God, he is a refuge for us, for those who seek him. And why would we not pour our hearts out to him daily because of who he is compared to our weakness? With those kind of resources that are at our fingertips, just as regular people to be able to cry out to God and seek his provision. It would be madness not to do that. And yet, there are many people who would be on the fence and say, ah, God can't be trustworthy. And David must have known that because now it's almost like he switches and turns almost into a lawyer here. And he must for those people that might be on the fence that maybe have arguments of other resources that they can put their trust into because maybe God's not so trustworthy. And because of that, he, in the next several verses, he completely disarms those arguments and completely destroys those arguments. So in the next several verses, verses 9 through 12, we're going to uncover the third reason to confidently seek God in times of trials, and that is trustability is found in God alone. Verses 9 through 12, trustability is found in God alone. So when we're faced with trials, there's always this temptation there's always this temptation or even arguments to turn and put our trust in worldly resources of men, tangible things that we can see, we can reason with, we can touch, and that's where we need to go to. And times of trials, our worst times, and David completely shatters all those arguments in these next several verses. So he starts off with giving us a little lesson of just the theology of man. Look down at verse 9. He writes, men of low degree are only vanity. Men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. So men, of who David is addressing here, this is not just a handful of people here. He's addressing mankind as a whole. Every spectrum from men that you would look at and say are great to those that we would look at and say are lowly insignificant both he's dealing with and as he says men of low degree are only vanity there's just a worthlessness to them which we would say sure I mean that's something we can see that's something we're forget about them we're looking for the people who have the power the people who can really help us and yet as he says but also men of rank are a lie so even those that we look at and we say they have power they can help us they are also worthless. There's a vanity to them. They are undependable. All men, apart from God, there's a worthlessness to them. They are like military tanks without gas and ammo. They're just simply ineffective, and their power is an illusion. So David gives us a great illustration for this, this, this problem of humanity, men from greatness to what we would say being in, in, insignificant. He gives us an illustration of just showing them and he presents us with a scale. This, um, Scale would have been something that would have been f- very familiar back then. This is how they would actually weigh things that they would have pointed to value, precious metals, coins, things like that. So you would have a beam across and two kind of pans or something that would hold whatever you want to weigh, and you would put your precious metals or what on one side, and then whatever you want to measure that on the other side, and you would see how much they're worth, how do they weigh out. And in this illustration, David puts man in the scale, and the results are terrifying. As he says, they in the balances they go up, you get this picture that they just shoot to the roof because there's no weight to them. He says that they are lighter than breath. You get this view of you're to the scale, and you're going to measure this, and you put man, and you just kind of breathe in it. And it just shoots to the ceiling because there's such a worthlessness to them. That You get a picture that the only thing that men apart from God have to offer is just hot air. That's all that they have. They're simply undependable and not worthy of trust. And so there's a vanity with men. There's a worthlessness to them. But then you might think of, well, yeah, but what about the resources that they, they have? Whether it be money or power or things like that, maybe that would get me out of whatever situation that I have. So here... In the next verse, David actually turns to the vanity of men, and then he turns to the vanity of the resources. And the results are the same. Look at verse 10. He says, do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So the first one that he turns to is oppression. This would be the abusing of power that you have. This would be pressuring others To do what you want unjustly. And this is really interesting because David is a king. He can do all this. I mean, he has power that he could wield any way that he wants. I mean, he could oppress and use his power to do whatever he wants people to do. And yet, here he is saying, don't do that. Because that is worthless apart from God. He simply just says it's undependable. You cannot trust in it. So whatever power that people have apart from the sovereign Lord, it is worthless. So he talks about the power that men have, the power that they use to oppress people. He says there's a worthlessness to that. But then he turns to their wealth. And he says this. And do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart Upon them. So, what else is vanity? The riches of this world. And it's really interesting once again because David's a king who is rich. He has riches, he has experienced that. And yet, he's sitting here saying, Do not set your heart upon them. And even he pretty much makes the point that even if you're successful, even if riches increase, even if somehow you get it through wrong motives, whatever, if it increases, it's still something that you do not need to set your heart upon. And of course, in contrast to that, he has already told us what we need to set our heart upon. We need to be the ones who pour out our heart to God in him only. Because that's what David is doing. The man who has all the power in the world, who has riches at his disposal, instead of him turning to those things, he is the one who is waiting in silence for God only, and he's begging others to do the same, following his example and not turning to worldly resources, but turning to divine provision. This is the heart of David because of what he knows about God. He knows that men are not trustworthy, but there is a trustability in God, in God alone, and he is the one to turn to, so, David, in just these few verses, he's exposed humanity and the resources for what they are. Humanity and their resources are vanity, they are worthless, they cannot be depended on. And in the next two verses, David contrasts just the worthlessness of man and their resources to the trustability of God. And just as a side note, this next two verses, we could spend the next several weeks diving into just these two verses because of how profound they are. But with the time that we have, we're just going to simply leave it as how David says it in its simplicity. But he writes this. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his works. So this phrase that he starts off with of, of once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. this. is actually a Hebrew writing technique that's sometimes referred to as a graded numerical ladder. It's to bring attention to the importance of what he is saying. There's many proverbs that does this. There's a sense that what he is saying is so important that it needs to be reiterated, it needs to be said again. So when you read this, it's something where we need to stop in our tracks and we need to listen to what he says. And first he says, power belongs to God. So in contrast to the vanity of man's power, it is God who is all-powerful, and we know this clearly from the beginning of Scripture. Even just looking outside, God is the creator. He is all-powerful. He is the one who is, has created everything, and he is sovereign over everything. It is clearly seen in his Scripture and throughout his creation. Very clear that he is the one That is all-powerful. Power does not belong to wicked, ungodly men. Power belongs to the righteous God. And yet, many people might say, if you just stop here, well, can we trust an all-powerful God? An all-powerful God that can just do whatever he wants. Can you trust him? And in the next section, what David says would scream, yes, of course you can, because verse 12 he writes this: And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. The, this all-powerful God that He's revealed Himself to us, He is the source of loving kindness. Not just loving kindness, but He is the he is a source of justice. He is the one who is going to make things right. And this is David's confidence. This is David's confidence that the all-powerful God loves his chosen people and he is going to bring justice. David's confidence is that the Lord loves him and will bring justice for him to his enemies. The Lord will make things right. And whatever evils in this world God will bring justice in his own time. He is the one who is sovereign over everything. He is the one that is in control. And so for us today, reading this, and we're just surrounded by evil. All the evil that we see in this world from things that are apart from us in a news article to things that are very close to us. People that we know we need to be the ones who put our confidence in God, in God alone. we In him, there is deliverance. There is hope of security, and he is trustworthy. That should be our same confidence that we read that David has within this psalm. God will be the one that makes things right. That is something we can put all our trust in. And now, after reading this psalm, after reading these This verse, there's still just kind of this lingering question that you might have, and that is going back to this all powerful God that will bring justice to all. And there's a tension here. Remember the scale, the scale where all humanity is in it, and guess what? The results is worthlessness. And they're worthless because they're wicked, and that's all humanity. And here's where we have to examine ourselves and see that there is a problem. There is a problem with people. There's a problem with humanity. And is that God will bring justice to those who have sinned against him. And that's terrifying. And it should be terrifying that all of us start out life in that scale. And apart from God, we're helpless just in our worthlessness, in our vanity. God is a judge and he's going to make things right. And that should be terrifying. However, as David points out, he is also a loving savior. He is the one that loving kindness belongs to him. He is the source of loving kindness. And now David clearly knew this truth. He's writing about it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have it through this scripture, through this word. He clearly knew this. And yet for us today, We have such a more clearer look into the loving kindness that God has for those who love him. Because back in David's day, God had made him a promise. He made a covenant with him that there was going to be a king one day that would reign forever from his line. Now, David never got to see that king during his life. But guess what? Us through scripture, we have. Because that king is Jesus Christ. Who, in his first coming, came as the perfect man, and he was the perfect sacrifice, dying on the cross as the replacement for the punishment of those that we deserve as sinners, and yet those who put their trust in him are forgiven. Or actually, the love of God is poured out upon them. And he was raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God, and now we're waiting, Right? We are waiting for his second coming where he is going to come and he is going to be the only perfect righteous king to reign from the throne of David. And we can put all the trust and hope and confidence that we have in that as we wait for that king to return. That is something of everything of who we are should be based on what we know about that hope of our savior and our king coming back to us. And in him, there is deliverance from sin and hope of eternal security for those who put their faith and trust in him only. And because of him, because of the sacrifice on Christ, because of the salvation that God has provided through him, we don't fear the scale as Christians. That is something that we no longer have a fear and anxiety of, of the worthlessness that is within us, because. Our worth is not within ourselves, it is in Christ because of our belief in him. So where else would we go? Where else would we go but following David in in the worst times, in our worst problems, in our worst trials, it is the Lord in whom we seek and we seek his provision. In this fallen world, there will always be hostility. There will always be hostility, persecution, strife. And when faced with the trials of this world, we must constantly learn to teach ourselves to press pause. Instead of spinning out of control and anxiety, we need to be ones to press pause and remind ourselves of who our God is, our all-powerful, the greatness, loving kindness and justice of who he is. Our Lord is judge, but he is also the savior. He is all-powerful and he is in control. And in whatever dark times that we go through, in times of suffering, in times of trials, we need to be ones that seek him because who else is there? There is no plan B. There's only God in who he is who who has that provision. So let us be the ones to seek him only through prayer and his word and trust in him only for provision. And I would pray that that hope that we have in him would cause us to live lives that would glorify him only. And this is only something that can happen through him. It's so, it such wonderful truth that we can read back from a king in the Old Testament. And yet, us, as just normal people, we can say we serve that same God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your word. Father, we are not those who are just wandering, just lost in darkness. We have your word. We have your promises. You have revealed yourself to us. And I pray that we would be a people, Father, a Christian people that would set an example for others to follow in that we do not adopt just worldly doctrines of fear, anxiety, and anger as we go through the trials of this world, but we would be those who, whatever problems we go through, it would cause us to look to you for provision. And Father, that instead of anxiety, it would be joy. It would be worship. And that it would be your truth that would shine through just out of our dark situations. And it would be that light that leads us and keeps us heading towards you and living a life that glorifies you. Father, I just pre- play, pray that you uh, be with us in the rest of our service. I pray that you be with as he as he shares your word with us. And Father, I just pray that today would be a day that we would think of you, meditate on you, and that it would cause us to glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.